Welcome to SVCC Weekly, a weekly podcast from Sangamon Valley Christian Center in Muhammad, Illinois. We hope you enjoy this message from our church, and be sure to check us out online at www.sangamonvalley.net. Uh, summer, I'm trying to make sure, and our, our kids are up too, that I, I get you out maybe a little bit early from what we do kind of some of the rest of the year, uh, so you have time to, to go and enjoy the more long summer days and spend some time together as the kids are off. So if you will jump with me into the Word of God this morning, uh, you can go ahead and turn if you want to Matthew 28, that'll be the first passage we'll be in uh, this morning. We're going through the series uh, that I've been been uh, calling first, so looking at what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God first. Matthew 6 tells us that. Seek the kingdom of God first in his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what are the things we need to seek first? We looked at our mission, our vision as a church. What has God put us on? Uh, we say it like this around here. We're following Jesus and reaching out. That's our mission following Jesus and reaching out. Our vision is the same vision from Scripture. We may expand upon it a little more specifically from time to time, but Scripture tells us the vision of God as he's building this spiritual household. It's a vision that includes all people. So people are our vision, going after people they may know the love of God and respond accordingly. We looked at it, two or four unchanging values of the church. The first value is that of God's word, that it is God's word. It is inspired, which means it is God-breathed. It's authoritative for our life today. In other words, we can live by it. We should live by it. We looked at prayer. We all need to be a people of prayer. There's different ways of prayer. We, the one we looked at specifically was petitioning prayer, coming before God. That's really what we did this morning as we prayed specifically for some requests. We were petitioning God where we have a right to go as the children of God by the blood of Jesus to the very throne of God and say, move on our behalf. Move on our behalf. It's as if we could go into the White House and ask the president to move on our behalf. Now, we have a Congress today, and we have a different political system. It's a little different than a king and, and queen, but uh, the king and queen gets things done usually more easily than what a president in the United States can do. But on to something else besides politics. We went from there to our worship, really our response to God, our worship, which comes out of our time in prayer and reading God's word responding to God as we learn about him, as we spend time with him. Our whole life is really to be worship. But oftentimes music is how we express our worship to God. We sing it. It's why it involves poetry from time to time. Today we're going to go on to the third of four unchanging values of the church. That would be the sacraments. It's a word we don't use very often because it sounds very old school. It sounds very kind of more traditional church. And we are somewhat traditional, but not traditional uh, in what most people think when, when they're thinking about church. But the sacraments. What are the sacraments? Do you know what they are? Do you teach them to your children? Do you teach them in such a way that they're repetitive? It's really something we practice Annually, we practice monthly, ongoing, because I believe in part they're really kind of the marks of the church. But the sacraments 
are these. I'm going to actually give you kind of two lists of sacraments. Uh, the, the first is going to be the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has a longer list of sacraments than what we do in the Protestant Church. You can look at the bottom there. The Protestant sacraments are the Lord's Table, Communion. We practiced that last Sunday, typically the first Sunday of the month. And Water Baptism. That's usually a little more annual. We practice Water Baptism. Those are the two practices that, that we have. I'm going to add another one uh, there that I think really kind of should be part of that list, at least the way we talk about it in the Protestant church, the evangelical church. We, we haven't officially added it to, probably in any ways, but it's part of the list. The Catholic sacraments there I think are important too, and if you read it the way they say it, you may not recognize all of them. The first is baptism. They practice that a little bit different than we do, but they have a basic belief of baptism. The Eucharist, which is what they call the Lord's Supper. They have a little different view in how uh, that is. It's uh, For some of us, if I were to go into those details, it would be a little strange probably, uh, but that would be one of their sacraments. Uh, they, they practice confirmation, kind of that membership into the church. They, they practice penance, which is really the sacrament of confession. Uh, you got to go to the priest and tell them all your sins. Uh, aren't you glad you don't have to do that? I don't think if we were honest, we'd have enough time in the day for you all to come and meet with me and tell me all your sins. <laughs> I love you all, but let's be honest. Come on. Extreme unction, which is that anointing of the sick or someone before their death. Uh, holy orders that... When someone becomes a priest, someone becomes uh, into the order of the nuns, and then marriage. But we're going to look at the sacraments today more in the Protestant sense, although I think it's okay to recognize some of the Catholic ones because those, uh, a lot of those practices uh, are a little different how they view them, but the general practice is uh, valuable, so it's worth noting and being able to talk with your friends that are part of uh, the Catholic Church on similarities and differences. But one of the basic definitions of the term sacrament is this. It, it's a thing set apart as sacred. Something that's set apart as sacred, holy, maybe we would say. The Protestant Church pr usually prefers the term ordinance instead of sacraments. It's something that we were kind of ordered to do. Uh, the Lord's Table, we were ordered to partake in. Water baptism, we are ordered to partake in. But that's what we're going to be looking at briefly this morning. And so as we begin, will you go ahead and position yourself as we read God's word and let us open with prayer. So if you just open your hands before you and bow your heads, God, we ask that you would, first of all, anoint me to declare your word, but anoint our ears to hear, more importantly, what you are saying. Holy Spirit, customize each one of us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first sacrament we're going to look at, the first of the big two, maybe we could say, is water baptism. We believe in the practice of water baptism. Water baptism, we believe, is by immersion. Do you know what that means? Some of you, maybe, if you were in other churches younger years, you were sprinkled. That's what some churches practice. They get some water, they, they sprinkle it upon you. Um, that's probably easier. Uh, I'm sure there's a bigger reason they do it than that. But we believe in the practice of Baptism by immersion. What does that mean? You get dunked. Doesn't mean you go into a cannonball into the tank, although there's videos of those online of kids doing that. And I may have encouraged one or two around here. But the real practice is it's you going under the water and coming back up. That symbolism of the old self is no longer, I'm now a new creation 
in Christ. We, we know as we go into water baptism and baptism by immersion that God commanded us to do it. The scriptures tell us at the end of Matthew, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And as you're making disciples, really the first thing it says to do is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why if you've been here and we've done water baptisms, you've seen me. The screen goes up behind us. The cross goes on in the nice stained glass window. And we take the lid off the baptismal tank. And I get down in the tank with someone and along with someone that's supporting them. And usually they tell how they came to know Christ, how they've come to recognize what Christ is working in their life. They make that public declaration of that faith they already have on the inside. They describe that in some way. Sometimes it's a parent, if it's with a child, and they describe the child's faith. And then we usually ask them to get on their knees, and they get down on their knees, and then we dunk them underwater, and we take them back slowly and tell them hold their breath, right? And they go under, and as we do that, we say we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You put them down, and they come back up. It's that symbolism of what God has already been doing in their life. We know Jesus and the early church really practiced baptism by immersion. Uh, in part, uh, we know that because when Jesus was even baptized himself, it tells us that he was in the Jordan. He, in other words, the river there, he was down in the water. And he came out of the water. So he had gone all the way down in and come back out is the description that's really given uh, in the scriptures. In Acts 2.41, it also tells us that that practice continued in the early church. It says, so, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. Baptism is that ordinance, that sacrament that we practice as a church. The church that scripture describes practices that it's a sign of our salvation. It's a symbol of our salvation. Here's the line I've kind of used. It's the line Pastor Brent used for years. It's an outward expression of an inward work. Or going public with our faith may be an easier way for us to remember that. Oftentimes it's children that have come to know the Lord and sometimes years before and they've seen their friends and they say, let's get baptized. And there's an excitement there. And sometimes they get baptized and they come years later and they've made a recommitment, another decision as they've grown older and matured, then say, let's, let's follow Jesus. I want to get baptized again. You know what I do? Okay, let's go down again. Scripture doesn't maybe show us that they get baptized over and over again, but I think it's okay to continue that kind of practice even of saying, look, I, I'm recommitting my life to Jesus. We know various ones that have done that here, even after maybe some trials in their life. And most people, if they go to Israel, what do they do? They go down into the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, and they get baptized there in part because of the significance of this is the, the river where God himself demonstrated this for us. But we need to teach that to our kids. It's a holy practice. It's something we repeat over and over again. It teaches us about our faith. It helps us pass on our faith in a real way to the next generation. The second sacrament that I want us to talk about this morning is the Lord's Table Communion. And I won't spend as much time on this because we practice this a little more often, although our kids aren't always up for it. They got to be last week. 
But in Corinthians, Paul giving the instructions to the Corinthians church kind of breaks it down in some very specific ways. In 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 26, and you may even have this memorized because I read it so often. But it says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. In other words, referring to the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. As a church, we will continue to practice water baptism. We'll continue to practice. No matter what we do, as methods change, as the songs change, we'll practice the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Jesus has done. That's the first thing really water baptism, or excuse me, the Lord's table does for us. It's to bring to remembrance what Jesus did for us and giving of his body, laying it upon the cross for us, that his blood was poured out for us. It's a time of remembrance for us. We're to continue to remember, we're to continue to proclaim that message, and so we must continue to remember it. It's also that, it's a proclamation of the message. Tells us right there, as I read it, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's an anticipation. It's also, I believe, really kind of something special about the presence of God that comes as we partake in the Lord's table, as we partake in communion. Just as the Old Testament, the sacrificial system really describes a meal with God, and God was to be present there with them in a special way as they brought their sacrifices, as they brought their offerings. The Lord's table is the same thing for us. It's a time for us to come and meet with God in a special way as we remember what he did for us, as we proclaim it, and as we really anticipate his return because he's coming back again. Amen? We're going to go on to the, the third uh, not a sacrament or ordinance officially, as we would call it in, in the kind of the Protestant church as our theology would recognize, but really as an identifying marker of the church, it's clear in Scripture. And so I'm, I'm tying this into the sacraments because even if we don't officially call it one, it is very closely related and very significant for us as a church. And that is to recognize that God established the family. Now, if I was doing a wedding ceremony, I get the privilege to do a few of those a year, and I have one coming up for a long I get to do again. And usually part of what I talk about in any wedding ceremony is that God established that relationship. God established the family. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 2.18 says it like this. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's not good for man to be alone. I shall make him a helper fit for him. Amen, amen Uncle John says. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll say amen now that I've been married uh, for, for a year, which, by the way, <laughs> at our wedding, a, a few of you, um, actually several of you, you, we said can you put in some notes into the jar, which we weren't too smart, and we were having a fun time trying to get them out of that little opening jar, um, and some of you wrote several notes, and I haven't got to all of them yet, but we've got through maybe half of them, and um, so far, luckily, only one person put, we can't wait for you to have babies, um, 
Jeff and Debbie. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I must have been Jeff based on Debbie's face. Thank you so much uh, for that prophetic declaration. But uh, yeah, baby is on the way, as you know. Another little thing about uh, marriage we've learned over uh, the year is I, one thing I learned um, is don't use her toothbrush. She doesn't like that. Yeah, on purpose, I need a toothbrush, and mine wasn't in that bathroom, so I used hers. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that one again. Um, we'll see if you respond the same way. You know what she did to me? She lost her, her razor, and so my face razor became her armpit razor. <laughs> then that's not as bad. That's what she told me. I said, yeah, but... we. But face to armpit, that's, that's different. That shouldn't be all right. <laughs> Sorry, I know some of you are thinking TMI, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're one big family, and we all know who won that battle, so it wasn't <laughs> me. <laughs> but scripture tells us a uh, helpmate. I guess she helped me with uh, sharing a toothbrush. Jesus also talks about the family. He talks about marriage and the significance of it. If you go to Matthew 19, really the first nine verses there, he's, he's giving a lot of information on marriage. There in Matthew 19, it's interesting because the, the religious leaders, they, they come to him. And the crowd's been there. It's one of those times they're really thinking, well, we're going we're gonna to catch him. And the Pharisees, they come, it says in verse 3, him and they, they tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause is it lawful and here we get a lot of thoughts in the church about well can you get divorced can you get remarried and there's there's a lot of different things regarding that and my response is really kind of the response where jesus goes to and he doesn't really immediately jump to answer their question because it as one commentary, he said it's kind of like this. It's like coming and saying, okay, I'm learning how to drive. How do I wreck my car? Like, you're no, why? You want to learn how to drive correctly. You want to learn how not to. And then, then you should learn at some point in time, okay, now if a wreck does happen, what do I do about it? And they're jumping ahead. But Jesus starts off here really with what God intended. He goes back to creation. He goes back to what was even said at the beginning of Genesis, not, not what we read, the verse I read earlier, but another verse there in Genesis, and he says this to them. He answers and says, have, have, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. We, we call this often leave and cleave, as it says. Leave and cleave. M married couples doesn't mean you, you totally disband your family. That's not healthy. But sometimes you have someone that maybe wants to be stay a little too close to mommy or daddy, and that causes problems for the relationship. And as a pastor who does biblical counseling from time to time, you come to Scripture and you say, yeah, but it says leave and cleave. Your relationship, your primary focus now shifts to your spouse. If you're a man, to the woman you married. If you're a woman, to the man you've married. And he goes on, he's, he says, therefore, leave and cleave, hold fast to your wife, 
It says, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus goes to the, the heart of the issue. How did God establish the family to exist? As husband and wife. As husband and wife. All the way back in the beginning. And Jesus comes and he reaffirms that. The family. It's significant also for us as the church because God calls us his bride. Us collectively are the bride of Christ who he's coming back for. It's to be a picture of that intimate relationship. As the people of God, our individual marriages ideally should reflect the intimacy that God longs to have with his church. It's to be that picture. It's the picture for all of us to understand the family. It becomes challenging sometimes, even for people that have grown up in the church because maybe the parent relationship they saw at home or the mom and dad they had didn't reflect that well. That's why it needs to be a focus for all of us. It also doesn't mean that if you are not married, you're out of this. Because God describes everybody in the family of God as his bride, as his church, and it's significant for us to understand the role even of singles. Jesus himself was single. You realize you, you serve a single Savior, right? If you go down to Matthew 19, verse 10, the disciples, after Jesus gives his exhortation on marriage and answers their question, he says to them, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples are thinking, well, he's not married. I don't know if any of them were necessarily married at this time. Maybe Peter was. But not all of them would have been married. Jesus wasn't married. And so they, they kind of, like they often do as we read Scripture, come, oh, well, then it's just better not to get married. And Jesus responds to them, and, and he gives a very clear instruction. He says, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, in other words, those who physically cannot participate in the act of marriage, who have been so from birth. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And then another category, the last one, he says, and there, there are those who are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It's important as the church, and even more so as the culture around us change, I think sometimes we get an incorrect view of the family. And we often think because we read Genesis and it says it is better for a man not to be alone. And many men, hopefully all that are married, say amen to that. We also have Jesus' further instructions that say, well, basically if it's been given to you and you're able to receive it, then for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, it's okay not to be married. And the culture around us, millennials, for various reasons, are choosing not to get married or getting married later. And so we actually are approaching a day and age, which again could change at some point in time, where we have more people that are unmarried than people that are married. We're not there yet, but as a generation, we're, we're really there. And that means if that continues in other generations as a culture, we're going to get there. So as a church, we have to understand that marriage is not a requirement for the family of God. 
I, I want to say that because I pastored as a senior pastor for many years single, so I think it's important, but even more so now that I am married, I want to make sure we recognize that, that marriage is not a requirement for the family of God, and the church must remember that. In fact, Paul himself in Corinthians says, it's better to stay single. Now, some would say, ah, that's just Paul's own thought there. He doesn't say that as being scriptural, and that could be. And he does go on, he says, well, if it's better to marry than burn with passion. And some men say, yep, that's why I got married. But it's important for us to remember singleness is described as being given, which is here in reference to the physical inability, but also as well as maybe more a decision that is made. Both are part of the family of God. So when we talk about family as one of the identifying markers of the church, we're not just talking about that kind of biological family, mom and dad, and then maybe mom and dad and some kids. When we talk about the identifying marker of the church, we're talking about that relationship that all of us are to have with one another, that all of us are to have with, with God, that closeness that you have as a family. You know what families do sometimes too? They fight. They pick on each other. They don't get along. Not that that should be us. But I think sometimes people get a picture of churches to be perfect. And if it's really to be described like a family, do you know a perfect family? We could get some of the siblings up here today and probably even demonstrate how they, uh, they fight. You, my, me and my siblings, we're all adults and, and married now. I think Karen's volunteering her and Angie to come up here. I don't know. but um, <laughs> Sorry, Angie. <laughs> that happens it's okay me and my adult siblings we you get us together and we're going to really pick on each other because well i'm the only boy and i have fun still doing that don't tell them that but we're to be that family that has that closeness together that's one of the instructions for us one of the pictures that god gives to us and so i think we don't want to call it a sacrament maybe we can call them identifying markers of the church but this is something that we will hold to Wherever I am, I think it's the instructions given in God's word for the church, not just my four-square church, not just the church movement, the four-square church or Pentecostal church, but I think the church, meaning every church that serves the Lord. These are the identifying markers. Water baptism, that, that proclamation of what you believe, that symbol of what you you've confessed already in your heart. The Lord's table, that communion, that remembering what God has done, that proclaiming, that's anticipating his return as well as that picture of the family that we're to be, which includes everyone. It's that closeness that we're to have. I'm going to ask worship team to go ahead and make their way up here. I'm going to ask them to be very careful um, because there are tic-tacs all over up here. But I would uh, encourage you that as our kids are up here, to go and maybe talk with them today uh, and ask them, do they, they see this? Do they understand what water baptism is? If they haven't been water baptized and you think it's time for that, let me know. There's a few that are on kind of a, a, a waiting list, I know, for when we do a water baptism next that have already come and told me they're ready to go. But uh, if you have some kids or adults, it's not just for kids. Oftentimes it's kids since we are a church where people often come and raise their kids and kids make decisions here and come to make that public declaration. But uh, if you, you talk with your kids and they're ready for that, let me know. 
Uh, it's a fun time as, as the family. The Lord's table, it's something to make sure your kids understand. It's more than just a cracker and little juice. It's remembering what Jesus has done. Do they understand that? Do you understand that? That's why we repeat it over and over and over again so we, we get it. The family, do you understand the family that we are to be? What that means for us as we interact with one another. Thank you for listening to SBCC Weekly. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast as well as give us a like. You can visit us again online at www.sangamonvalley.net.